0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Harvard Business School professor Mihir Desai is on a mission to restore humanity to finance. In the last 50 years, the finance industry has changed dramatically. It's fraught with questionable practices, he says, and inaccessible to outsiders, in part because of newly developed science, quantification, and models. In that
1: process, though, we lost the humanity underneath finance. And specifically, finance became about spreadsheets and screens and stopped being about the people behind those things.
0: In today's show, he argues for a principled, life-affirming finance industry. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Societal problems like income inequality have emerged from a financial system that has gone awry, says Mihir Desai. He thinks if we link finance to personal stories, we'll do finance better. Right now, it's driven by value extraction. John Dickerson of CBS speaks with Desai about his book, The Wisdom of Finance. In it, Desai talks about how principles of finance can provide answers to critical questions in our lives. He says bankruptcy teaches us how to react to failure, and the lessons of mergers apply to marriages. Dickerson kicks off their discussion.
2: First of all, you've written both the wisdom of finance and how finance works, right? Kind of on top of each other, it feels like. Yeah, they kind of came out of the same uh, effort in some sense. Right. Um, So let me do this. If wisdom starts with defining our terms... Can you explain to me what finance is? Because I feel like finance is like what Jean Cocteau said about poetry. Poetry is indispensable. I just don't know what for. Yeah. So, so tell me, what exactly is finance when we're talking about it? Sure. I mean, it's broadest sense. It's about the way capital
1: moves in an economy. And that is so fundamental to everything that we do in market-based economies. We transfer funds from people who have them, households, savers, to people who need them, entrepreneurs, firms, governments, and finance is about the way that happens. And because capital is the lifeblood, unsurprisingly, of capitalism, (laughs) when finance goes awry, as I think it has, uh, we all suffer. And when finance is done well, it's absolutely remarkable. So, broadly speaking, that's what it is. In my efforts, particularly in the wisdom of finance, I try to take it even more to kind of the human, spirit
2: a well, little more. And that's the topic we're here to talk about today, which is bringing virtue into finance. Yeah. So um, you've already uh, tipped your hand. You you think it's in finance is, is in crisis. Yeah. When people look at finance, particularly in the political context, they think, ah, regulation. Um, you know, fix it, get in there. Um, and your argument in The Wisdom of Finance, which I love, is um, values-based and then take it from there.
1: Sure. So first, we should do a little diagnosis with what's wrong with finance. Uh, The first piece that's wrong with finance is just in terms of its public standing. It's just remarkably low. And we're 10 years after the financial crisis and should be no surprise. The second thing is uh, there is a real problem, not just perception. There is a problem in finance, which is too much of the industry is associated with value extraction and not enough with value creation. And that's a genuine problem that we have to kind of address and deal with and kind of stop talking about finance as God's work, we have to kind of come to terms with that problem.
2: Now, let me interrupt you quickly, though. Explain to people what you mean by extracting value versus creating value, Mihir.
1: Sure. I mean, just broadly, what we think is when entrepreneurs do things and when governments do things that are positive, it's one plus one equals more than two, right? There's some value creation that happens as a part of that. Value extraction is just a fixed pie, and we're just grabbing as much as we can. And a lot of finance, not a lot, but chunks of finance have degraded into that, which is there's a fixed pie, I'm taking a bigger slice than everyone else. And that's the problem. And that, of course, I think if you really look hard at it in the last three decades, a lot of the problems that people perceive in capitalism today about income inequality, about a lot of different things have to do with the way finance has changed in the last 30 years. So the question is what to do about it, and there are some candidate solutions, two of which I think are very unpromising, one of which is just complete outrage, you know, which is to shout occupy, Uh, And I think that's complicated and problematic for all kinds of reasons. Second is to regulate it, and I think that's problematic because, A, a lot of regulators are captured, to be frank. Um, Captured? Captured in the sense that a lot of regulators are captured to the industry, or captured by the industry.
2: So they pretend to
1: regulate, but they're not really regulating. Yeah, that's exactly right. As our legislators, so we shouldn't expect that much. And then, of course, we know that a lot of regulation goes wrong because of the unintended consequences of that regulation. Uh, and we can talk about some of those proposals. So, you know, my sense of things is to look deep into what has gone wrong with finance. And so, what, one of the things that's gone wrong with finance is we've lost the humanity in finance. The revolution of the last fifty years in finance, which has been fantastic as a scholar of finance, has been the elegance of the models the quantification that goes along with that, and the science that has become part of finance. In that process, though, we lost the humanity underneath finance, and specifically, uh, finance became about spreadsheets and screens and stopped being about the people behind those things. Mm -hmm. So one of my efforts, and there's kind of several different efforts, one of the efforts in the wisdom of finance is to say, let's bring back some humanity to finance, and the way you do that is you reconnect finance to the humanities. Mm Which is a way of saying, actually, um, once you discover in the humanities a lot of the lessons of finance, you can link these two worlds. I experience this every day. I teach at the business school and at the law school at Harvard, and I cross the river routinely. And the skepticism that the college and the university looks at the business school with, which is that we're vaguely evil, and the skepticism that many people in the business school look at the humanities with, which is they don't have that much to offer, is really problematic. (laughs) And so we have to bridge that. And um, I actually think there's a huge amount of richness there so that people no longer perceive finance as vaguely evil. And we come to appreciate that by relinking ourselves to the humanities and those stories we can start to actually conduct finance in a better way, because then we won't get lost in the spreadsheets and screens
2: as much. Stories which at their center have human beings and hopes and dreams and creation and all of those fuzzy words that you don't hear about in movies like The Wolf of Wall Street. Well, for sure. Right?
1: (laughs) In fact, it was so fun to do this book because it was just a great exploration of all the ways in which finance is portrayed in culture. And particularly recently, it's just terrible. Uh, Historically, there are kind of more nuanced portrayals of finance, but recently
2: it's just been terrible. Is there a financial instrument that is to blame? So when a lot of people think of finance, maybe they think of the mortgage-backed securities uh, cratering the the, um, Western economy. Um, Is there there an instrument, though, that was created in finance that delinked between... Uh, I'm gonna create a system that creates value in a company that employs people, and and then an instrument that you said, no, I'm gonna run up the stock price, sell, and get out, and I don't care what the company does.
1: Yeah, so actually, I don't think there is. And and I think the reason there is not is because if you look in history, finance has had this problem for 600 years, okay? Mm -hmm. So you kind of go back to the first accounts of finance, which are from the Amsterdam Stock Exchange, and there are stories of options trading in the Dutch East India Company, and the nature of speculation Um, If you go to the French Revolution, in the book I talk about uh, these remarkable tontine policies, these insurance policies, which actually gave rise to the French Revolution. Really badly mispriced insurance policies that were used by the French government to finance the French Revolution uh, ended up creating the downfall um, of the government. But there's like the first piece of financial engineering happens then. A bunch of Swiss financiers repackage all these tontine instruments, And they pick only the, these tontine instruments are fantastic, they're basically, uh, they they help you manage mortality risk. But the short version is you get paid when somebody dies. Okay, okay, Okay. so, um, you know, it's a kind of a mortality game. Anyway, so they end up buying up all the insurance policies associated with these five-year-old Swiss girls who are of a particularly healthy stock who won't pass away for a long, long time and bundle them up just like we did Securitization 10 years ago. So there's no one instrument. It is that recently the dark side of finance has come to prevail yeah. more often than the light
2: side. And so, um, getting back to the, your thesis, which is that if the people participating in finance have this relationship with the humanities, yeah. they will be uh, propelled by the kind of human qualities, not the extraction of value qualities. Yeah. And
1: I think, look, this is not a short-run game, I'm yeah. meaning, <laughs> meaning I'm an educator, and I believe deeply in education, and so I think this is a long-run game about the next generation. But it's only by looking past the screens and the spreadsheets. The temptation in finance is you build a financial model, and it's very elegant, and it's very precise, and it looks fantastic, and it looks neutral, Yeah. completely morally neutral. and that's problematic because depending on what you're doing behind those numbers, you have to think about it. So, so for example, in the book, um, instead of talking about insurance in like a typically dry way, I try to link it to either the French Revolution or the Maltese Falcon. If it's derivatives, it's about Jane Austen. So that when we teach this stuff in schools, people aren't just learning like stochastic calculus and the payoff diagrams. I think the other agenda is, frankly, we have to let everybody into finance. So, A lot of people in finance get their power by intimidating other people. And so this book, as well as how finance works, is about letting the world into finance, which is many people don't understand equations and diagrams, and they need stories. And so that's their goal here, which is if we're going to make finance better, A, get people to behave better, and B, get people who are outside of finance who demonize it to understand what it is by not, letting, not, not doing it in the typical way.
2: You write in How Finance Works, neglecting finance and hoping to survive meetings by thoughtfully nodding your head is an increasingly untenable choice.
1: So, I mean, I see people like this all the time, John. Like, so in my classrooms, I see executives, I see MBAs, and they think they can just skate by, and they realize when they're like 35 or 40, it doesn't work. And that's because finance is a dominant force in capitalism today. It's the way we talk about business. It's the way you communicate to the external world. As a society, think about our financial problems. To be a citizen without understanding
2: finance is is problematic. So that's why we we really need to open it up and liberate it. And I wanna get to some of those specific stories. I wanna talk about Uber and Google and Apple, but before we get there, I wanna go back to this idea of stories. So the point is both to educate those who are in finance so that they are better citizens, and then also to give us all just financial literacy so that we're yep. not mystified by these terms we hear. So let's start, I don't know if you want to start with risk or the Maltese Falcon, um, I loved the Maltese Falcon just because yeah. Dashiell Hammett is a, but but give us one of these stories to tell people, see exactly sure. how you're trying to make this link.
1: Sure, let's, uh, let's do risk and insurance, because I think insurance is the thing which, as I wrote the book, I realized is everything in finance? Yeah. So much of finance is about managing risk, and insurance is key. So instead of doing insurance in the typical way, you know, which is pretty boring, uh, um, the way to do it is kind of with the Maltese Falcon. So um, this is a great novel by Dashiell Hammett, featuring Sam Spade, kind of hardscrabble detective. Uh, he doesn't talk very much, but he's you know brilliant in his own way. So in the novel, he's talking to his prime suspect, who is also his love interest, um, because. That's the way Sam Spade, you know, rolls. Uh, (laughs) He says to her, I I want to tell you this story about Flitcraft. And she says, okay. And he says, I got a call from a woman. And she said, uh, Sam, my husband disappeared five years ago. He went out in the morning, he left, he never came back. I just got a call from a friend in Spokane, Washington, who says she saw him. Uh, Would you go out there and find out if it's really him? Sam says, I'll take the case. He goes to Spokane, Washington. He pretty quickly finds the guy. And he says, are you Flitcraft? And the guy who's now going by the name Charles Pierce uh, says, yes, actually I am. And Sam says, what happened? Why did you just disappear like that? And so Flitcraft is actually kind of relieved to finally tell the story to somebody. So he says, well, you know, Sam, I'll tell you, I went out that morning, I went to work, I was proceeding along on my normal day, and as I was walking to work, a beam, a construction beam fell right next to me and almost killed me. And a piece of the sidewalk jumped up and hit me in the face and scarred me. And at that moment, I realized the world is completely random. Everything is random. And I've been living my life as if everything is well-ordered. And now I'm gonna change my life at random to be in tune with the universe. And I just left. I have to say, by the way, when I told my wife I was going to start the book with that story, she was uh, was not impressed. But then Sam says, but the best part of the story is when I found him in Spokane, he had recreated the same life he had in San Francisco. And he had married again and had the same kind of home, same kind of job, and had done basically the same thing. So what's that story about? (laughs) So that story is about and it's kind of the giveaway in the hammock, which is just amazing, is the names. So Flitcraft was the most important actuary at the time, and Charles Pierce, who's really Charles Peirce, is a philosopher who is obsessed with insurance. And it's all about insurance. The fundamental human condition is risk is everywhere. And once you start to understand that, that's the first piece. And the second thing is how do you navigate it? And the answer in that story is everything looks random, but in fact there are patterns everywhere. The guy who tried to change his life at random couldn't do it because in fact, things that look random actually have patterns. That was the core discovery in finance 300 years ago, the normal distribution and everything that came along with that. And then the final piece of it is, of course, how do you manage all this randomness? And the answer is, according to what Charles Pierce said, this remarkable philosopher um, in the late 19th century, he went around, including at Harvard, saying, we are all insurance companies. People thought he was drunk. They were like, Why? what are you talking about? And his answer was, we are all insurance companies. The fundamental human condition is randomness everywhere. How do you navigate it? You observe the distributions. You experiment. You get experience. You don't navel gaze. He's the real father of pragmatism, right. the school, American School of Philosophy. And that is, in sense, what insurance does. Um, it's all, and in fact, that's what life is. Life is about randomness everywhere. How do you manage it? How do you navigate it? Pierce's uh, prescription experience. Do what insurance companies do. Sample the population, learn from experience, and then you'll be okay. So that's the sense in which insurance is not something uh, abstract and removed from the human condition, but actually is deeply attached to it. Right. And that's true for risk management. That's true for options. That's true for leverage. That's true for mergers. That's true for bankruptcy. That's true for all the big themes in finance, which many people view as separate from the human condition. Actually, they're Deeply tied in. I mean, my favorite quote in the book is from Nietzsche. He has this quote, which is he's a problematic guy, but he's interesting. <laughs> um, if you want he's to understand demand, mm-hmm. you have to understand the borrower lending relationship because we've been doing it for millennia. That, notion, that commitment notion that we are committed to each other in an exchange. You know, that makes finance actually central to the human condition, not something like far removed.
2: So that's the goal. And if you are a person or a company, and you are trying to live the placid life with the wife and two kids and a car and a place on the weekends that you go to, finance helps you manage the steel beam moment, right, and allow you to live in relative comfort, knowing that you've been that the, that you're taken care of should the steel beam fall. Yeah. Is that one way to think? That's one about way to say it. it I mean, it's is... slightly perverting your reason to use the story, but it occurred to me as you were saying it. Yeah, I think that's right.
1: Which is, there's a whole bunch of just. Uh, remarkably, uh, I wouldn't say mundane, but daily problems that we face that we have to manage, and finance helps us. Mm -hmm. Those uncertainties in our life, our retirement uncertainties, our insurance uncertainties, that's
2: why finance is so core, not just to Wall Street, but you know in our lives in our daily lives. So then let me ask you this and then we'll get back to the stories. But so going back to your point about extracting value versus uh, participating in finance in a way that um, attaches more to human values. If finance allows a system in which we can manage risk so that we can live placidly, a company can manage risk so they can do their work, is the guy sitting on the sidelines or woman sitting on the sidelines who's making bets about the steel beam falling and whether you've guessed right about how often it's gonna fall, are they the ones extracting value or are they the ones doing anything human? Yeah.
1: So broadly speaking, I think people, uh, where is the value extraction going on? And so I think my notion of this, which is the next book that's coming out, is one that's not terribly popular, but I think is, I'm pretty sure, entirely right, which is what has happened over the last four decades that has transformed finance is the rise of the asset management industry we don't even know how much it's transformed finance. Modern institutional investing grew up in the last 40 years and that gave rise to alternative assets, which is just a fancy way of saying a private equity and hedge funds and the entire mutual fund industry. That is where there's value extraction happening and that's really problematic and we can talk more about that. People point to, you know, investment bankers who do M&A deals or things like that. That's actually not the bad part. It's not the day traders. The real problem is we've professionalized uh, an industry that has extracted a whole bunch of rents in the last four decades on a kind of vaguely dubious proposition. And correcting that, I think, is at the heart of what's wrong with capitalism. That's not what these last two books are. That's what the new book is about. Um, But I think that's where the value extraction comes from. That industry is enormously powerful and enormously important in many ways, but it's been founded in these last four decades on a set of myths that I think are really problematic, which we can go into more, yeah. Okay,
2: good, all right, so now we've, um, so if risk and insurance, if we are all insurance companies, um, and that's the first thing we need to learn, what's the second thing we need to learn?
1: Well, so, you know, from there you go to, well, I can manage some risks with insurance, and by the way, again, we've been doing this forever. You know, Roman burial societies, it was a pooling of risk, um, Civil War pensions, and we've just been doing this forever then you have to kind of think about other risk management problems that you can't use insurance for. So that's where we get into options and diversification. Again, two things that we think of, many people think of as coming out of the 1960s and the revolution in quantitative finance. But again, of course, things we've been doing for millennia. So think about options. Sounds scary, actually been doing it for a long time. And in fact, the way I try to talk about options is not the usual way, which again is with payoff diagrams and and quantitative examples, but with Lizzie Bennett and uh, Pride and Prejudice. So, some of you may know Jane Austen novels. Uh, you know, in many ways, the plot line in many of those books is risk management. <laughs> and so, in particular, and Austen is clear about this young men can make mistakes, young women cannot make mistakes. And what is the plot line of those novels? Typically, there's a young woman, Lizzie Bennett, suitors come along, they've got to decide who to take. And in fact, if you don't think about it as a risk management problem, just think about Mr. Collins' proposal to Lizzie Bennet, which is, as you may, some of you, has anybody ever read Pride and Prejudice or seen the movie? Oh, fantastic. So um, if you think about the Mr. Collins proposal, it's the worst proposal ever, right, to Lizzie, where he says, you're not that pretty, you're not that rich, here's a proposal on the table, (laughs) I suggest you take it. Uh, And of course, he's playing on her risk aversion. And, of course, her mom says, take it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then she decides to kind of go gamble on the next one. Of course, he delivers that same proposal the next day uh, to her friend, and she's like, done, I'll take it. This problem of a risk management problem is the first suitor comes along, he's nice, and he's rich, but he's drunk. The second one is nice, but poor. You know, this is like, and you have to pick. The great part about these examples, though, is these characters intuit the logic of options and diversification. They talk about managing this risk problem in the way that we talk about managing risk in finance. So that's just a way of saying, in one of these books, um, it's fantastic, this woman has like these 10 suitors, they're coming along, she's talking to her friend, and her friend is like, how are you gonna decide? And at one point she just says, well, you know, if only I could marry all 10, which of course is the essence of diversification, right? (laughs) You you take a choice, you atomize it, you spread it out. Um, Another one articulates an option portfolio strategy. This is all a way of saying that options are actually kind of in the way we think about the world. And in fact, that chapter ends with, I think, the perversion of options in our modern world, which is, I see young people all the time who come into my office, and some of you may know this term, because young people are preoccupied with optionality. You know, what does that mean? People want more and more optionality in their life. And I, people come, I see students, and they're like, well, I'm gonna go work at this company because it'll give me some optionality. Yeah. I'll go do this degree, because it'll give me some optionality. What does that mean? Well, I want to be able to do something in the future without the obligation to do it. And it all sounds great, except what I observe is that it goes horribly wrong, (laughs) which is people who spend five or 10 years acquiring optionality end up getting good at one thing, which is buying optionality. (laughs) And they forget the big lesson of options, which is actually, it's insurance. And you buy it so that you can take a big idiosyncratic risk. And then they spend the next 20, 30 years buying optionality, and it's a tragedy. It's, it's a tragedy. <laughs> um, and they mislearn, in some sense, the most important lesson in finance, which is, of options, which is you buy an option so you can then take a big risk. And these are kids who have like so many safety nets and so much optionality already, because they're so smart, and they come from loving families, right. and yet they feel compelled to buy more optionality. And it's, it's almost absurd.
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. What is the role of myth in America? What's the difference between the stories we tell ourselves and historical reality? David Blight is a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. He says history can be dreadful, so myths help us process it.
2: Much of history is dark because human nature is dark. And so we sometimes have to find ways to process the past in sentimentalism, in stories that allow us to wake up in the morning.
0: In the episode, Separating Myth from Reality in American History, Blight explains why he thinks the story of progress is America's biggest myth. Today's moderator, John Dickerson, is featured in the show. Find it wherever you listen to Aspen Ideas to go. Let's return to today's featured talk. Here's John Dickerson.
2: Well, let me ask you this, though. We started taking it from there. What if I'm... a a person, uh, let's, let's leave the gender out of it. And I'm embarking on my college career or maybe my, I'm in my junior year of college. Uh, why do I wanna go into finance okay. in a way that isn't, I just wanna make a lot of dough so that I can uh, have optionality on a house in Aspen or a house in the Hamptons?
1: I think, and I think people who are in, is anybody in this room in finance? Fantastic, we have one. Um, I think finance is absolutely fascinating if you wanna understand the modern capitalistic economy because you get to look across firms and across sectors and you have to think hard about where the next opportunities are. People think finance is accounting. It's not, it's like the opposite of accounting. Accounting is like write down today what these ledgers tell you. Mm -hmm. Finance is about what the heck is Facebook gonna look like in the future and how do I figure out to value it today? Well, to figure that out, what do you have to figure out? well, wait a second, what's gonna happen with Libra and cryptocurrencies? What's gonna happen with the regulation of social media in the future? What's gonna happen when advertising shifts to Amazon and away from these other people? That is really fun. And thinking about that problem, and that's like just a Facebook problem, you write that down that problem 10,000 times, and the interactions of all those problems,
2: And, man, is it intellectually interesting. Because there are human choices and decisions and behaviors at the root of all of those guesses you're making, right? No,
1: absolutely, right? So, I mean, like, you know, to really understand Facebook, you have, and as an investor or somebody who's trying to think about it, well, wait a second, what the hell's going to happen with global payments? What's going to happen with social media? I mean, these are, what's going to I mean, if they have to, I'll give you an example. The second quarter conference call last uh, year, Facebook CFO said, yeah, our cost structure is going to totally change because now we're going to be regulated like a publisher in many countries okay, wait, now i got to think about what that means. i got to think about what it means to be called a publisher. (laughs) And why are they hiring 20,000 people in Germany to vet content? I mean, that takes you down such a fascinating path. And and you get to do that every day with different companies, and that is fascinating. And that is, without the monetary rewards, which can be sizable, Mm -hmm. intellectually is so rich that it is a great area to go into. Not great for everybody, I'm not saying, like, broadly speaking, but if you have this kind of broad interests and you have a hard time staying, um, you, you like the breath and you mm-hmm. wanna go, kind of go deep a little, but not necessarily a lot. You don't wanna spend your whole life thinking about cryptocurrency and the future of Libra, but you wanna do it as part of a bundle, finance is
2: spectacular. And do you you make a distinction? So then there's, that sounds quite romantic and fun. Earlier, when you were talking about the That's romantic for you, John? Well, yes. (laughs) You've you've discovered me, yes, exactly. Um, But it's actually not that different from what a journalist does, which is, you know, you go, why are people behaving the way they're going to behave? How are they going to behave in the future? Absolutely. And how do you tell the story of how they're behaving?
1: So, in fact, one of my former students uh, is a former journalist, and he now runs a very large hedge fund, and his journalistic background was enormously important to the way he does finance. People don't, there's a deep connection there, absolutely between journalism.
2: So, but I'm still stuck on the topic of your next book which is the, um, let's call them algorithms, or the numbers that are used to um, just squeeze more and more out of finance to increase profits and that yeah. seem devoid of the romanticism you just described.
1: Yeah. yeah, so this next book is gonna be called, um, well that doesn't quite yet have a name, but it's about the rise of investor capitalism, not shareholder capitalism, but investor capitalism, which is a way of saying this professionalized class of investors who have come out of nowhere in the last 40 or 50 years to dominate the economy, and their preferences have come to dominate the economy, and that is both wonderful and terrible. Um, first piece of it is how did it happen? Some people in the room are going to be old enough to know it all began with an obscure piece of legislation called ERISA, mm-hmm. which is so foundational to everything that has happened in finance in the last 40 years. People don't... I don't even appreciate it. It is the birthplace of the modern investment management industry. Completely accidental uh, way to try to protect workers and in the process gave rise to investment management industry. So in short, it's about pension protections. Um, I'll give you a brief story about this to give you a sense of how ironic it is, which is Peter Drucker, as a famous management thinker, the real deal, very serious guy. In the early 1980s, late 1970s, he writes a book. It's called Pension Fund Socialism. What's the thesis of the book? Thesis of the book is pension funds have come to own all the assets in the economy because the workers basically have these massive pension funds that have been created, and now they control the means of production. So he's worried about worker-controlled socialism, pension fund socialism. So let's just think about the last 40 years, You know that is the most absurd thing to be worried about, which is workers have not come to dominate capitalism. <laughs> and yet that's what he was worried about. And the reason why, of course, is pension funds outsourced everything to the investment management industry. That gave rise to the investment management industry. And now their preferences and their way of thinking about the world has come to dominate. And that's in everything. It's in the way we think about share buybacks, which mm-hmm. is an important piece of what's going on in the economy today. It's in the way we do social programs. Think about social programs today. How do we build low-income housing in this country? The answer is, we use investors. We sell tax credits. Like That's how we do it. How do we do enterprise zones? We sell tax credits to investors. How do we do not-for-profits today? Everybody's gotta have an ROI. If you don't have a return on investment model in your not-for-profit sector, you got a problem. That's like the dominance of an investor mentality. And when you come to think of it, it's kind of absurd.
2: But wouldn't people say, well, that we were leveraging the, me- the investor mentality to do good things?
1: We are, but there is this sense in which we've now kind of contorted social policy and not-for-profits to have an investment mentality. So low-income housing is a great example. That is the way we build low-income housing. I mean, if you think about a problem in this country that is really severe, it is housing shortages for low-income. It gives rise to the eviction problems, it gives rise to everything. And yet we do it in this really weird, perverse way, which is we sell tax credits to investors so that they can decide where they want to put low-income housing. It's a complete Rube Goldberg machine, uh, yet it's the way it gets done. Um, and so the goal of the book is to say there are fantastic things about investors. They've actually done some really good things. And we have fallen prey to their excesses to a remarkable degree. Right. And we need to course correct for that dominance of investors. Um, and that's what the new book is, is, is going to be about.
2: So I wanna get back to the, the idea of bringing value back to finance, values yep. into finance, and then I wanna talk about those, some of those companies um, and how you see finance playing out mm-hmm. with respect to Uber, Uber and Apple and, and Google. So let's f- finish on your, on your thesis about bringing value into finance. How is this story gonna play out? If you've played out the, the Facebook story, how is, how is your argument gonna work without a lot of heavy-handed regulation to bring the sense of values back into finance? Well, so I think about it at the micro level and at
1: the macro level. So the micro level is people going into finance get exposure to a set of ideas that makes them understand that what they're doing has human consequences. And that happens through the book, The Wisdom of Finance, and anything that goes along with that. And a humanistic approach to finance. Like, we should stop talking about it in the way we do. We should talk about it in a humanistic way. At the macro level, I think it has to do with the things we were talking about most recently, which is, We have got to get especially large pension funds to rethink the way they allocate capital in the economy. Uh, I think that is the kind of hidden thing that has gone wrong here. We have these very large pools of capital which have basically abdicated their role and they've outsourced it, and that is highly problematic. Once they come back and they re-enter the game and they say, actually, no, 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 we're gonna allocate our capital. The Canadian model, for those of you who know it, I think is a great example of this. That's how we get um, the value extraction to stop to the, to the degree it's happening now. And I think the final thing is, I'll say about this is, I'll, I'll do this in the form of a story, which is in the last chapter, the last chapter of the Wisdom of Finance book is called Why Everyone Hates Finance. Uh, I will say that uh, the book is, you know, I'm really proud of the book. I was really happy with the way it was received. But there was this one jarring moment, which is, I got a paragraph in the New Yorker, yeah, uh, you know, briefly noted section. And I was like, oh, this is good, I got a paragraph. And then I read the paragraph. No, it, it wasn't so good. <laughs> first three sentences were fantastic, you know, blah, nice, nice, blah, 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 blah. But the last sentence was, but, you know, blah. Uh, never answers the most important question of all, which is the title of his last chapter, which is why everyone hates finance. Which is like a knife to my heart. Um, which of course I felt like saying that's the next book, but you never get to say that. (laughs) Um, But in that last chapter, I think the reason why everyone has come to hate finance and the the really critical belief that has gone wrong is uh, summed up in this story, uh, which is O Pioneers Mm -hmm. by Willa Cather. Mm -hmm. So Willa Cather, an amazing American author. um, You look in fiction for depictions of finance and it's pretty ugly, right? It's all ugly. Uh, And then you have this heroine in O Pioneers, Alexander Bergson, who is like this remarkable financier. She does everything. She does an LBO of the family farm. She does mergers, she does options, she does diversification, she helps people who go bankrupt. So she's like a textbook of finance, like in that novel. But here's the good news about Alexander Bergson. Most of the characters in fiction and finance end up becoming avaricious, horrible people. What happens to Alexandra Bergson? And the answer is after this career of accumulating wealth for her family, um, somebody asks her, you know, how did you do it? And she says, it was the land. She's a farmer. Mm-hmm. It was the land. So what's the brilliance of that statement? So the brilliance of that statement is she understands the most important lesson in finance, which most people in finance forget, which is actually there's no place where it's easier to conflate luck with skill. So most people in finance, when you ask them how they've done well, oh, I picked this stock, I beat the market last year, whatever, they s- think that's them, yeah. it's skill. We know in finance it's luck. <laughs> mm. There is no area in life where it's easier to relabel luck as skill as it is in finance. And Alexander, Bur- and as a result of that, you start to believe it, mm-hmm. and then you become a jerk mm. because you believe that hype. Alexander Bergson never believed it. She said, it's the land, which is just a way of saying the big myth in finance is, oh, yeah, I did did this over the last 10 years, so that must mean I'm very skillful. You know, If you do that in tennis, there's no question. Rafael Nadal is skillful. He's not lucky. If you beat the stock market a couple of years, you have no idea if you're skillful because there's so much randomness. And so in finance, we've come to believe that You can attribute performance to skill in a one-to-one way. But those of us who really understand finance deeply, and anyone in finance really knows, that's totally untrue. And that's how people become kind of jerks. That's the myth in finance, which is, look, I'm adding value. It's obvious I did this thing. And you have to say to yourself, wait a second, the most important thing in finance is actually luck and skill are almost impossible to tell apart, but over maybe 30-year horizons, you can do it. And that's the mistake people make. And when they make that mistake, they become really big jerks.
2: But um, well, that so that seems that seems to make sense in the in the context of that story. But in terms of what you were saying earlier, when you were thinking about looking forward to see what's going yeah. to happen, Facebook and all of that, that those two things seem to be things where you can apply reason. Yes, you can. Uh, smarter people are better than exactly. people who are less smart. Well, yes. Or, I mean, better at the, doing that job.
1: Yes, that's right. And but we have to be humble about it, which sure. is when you get one right, you don't you don't project that you're brilliant.
2: Right.
1: Um, you know, There's the famous coin flipping experiment. You know, In a room like this, everybody takes out a quarter, flips a coin, and we flip it 10 times. And I ask if anybody in this room has nine heads, 10 heads. In a room this size, there's a significant likelihood somebody's gonna have 10 heads in a row. Mm-hmm. Okay? Very significant likelihood somebody in this room is gonna have 10 heads in a row. And then I'm gonna ask that person, how do they do it? And one answer is it was luck. <laughs> and the other answer is, well, I flipped it this way, and I went like this, and then I caught it like this, and I rubbed a little bit like this. right? right. And we should understand that a lot of investing is like that. You know, somebody, you know, we have thousands and thousands of money managers. Yeah. Somebody beats the market 10 years in a row. It should come as no surprise. Mm. Now, does that mean that that person's skillful? I don't know and neither do you, and neither does she. <laughs> but we, we approach it with a level, we don't approach it with the appropriate amount of humility. We approach it with, damn, I beat the mark for 10 years in a row, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm a rock star. Uh, and, that's, and that's the problem, in a way. We don't have the humility, I think, that the finance actually deserves.
2: So let me ask you, before we turn it over to questions, uh, you wrote a piece in the, was it in the Times, where you said that we should be rooting for Uber's IPO to... Was it fail, or was it not do, yeah. as, not do as well as, yeah. as people were hoping, no, totally. or some of the investors were hoping? So as you know, you don't write the headlines
1: in these True things. enough. Um, yes. but, and we, I negotiated for a better headline, but the headline did come out as, uh, why you should root for the Uber IPO to fail. And the reason why is uh, not because of anything to do with Uber. I think Uber is an interesting company, I quite like it, I've enjoyed it, I'm a customer. The problem is what's behind Uber is a movement in venture capital called Mega Venture Capital. And the op-ed is really about Mega Venture Capital, which is just a way of saying the venture capital industry has been transformed in the last several years by, in particular, one player, SoftBank, who is making not $10 million bets like we usually do in venture capital, but $5 billion bets. And they're making bets at a scale and with a speed that is distorting the entire venture world. And I think that's really problematic. So why is it so problematic? And just to be clear, the SoftBank Vision Fund, it's a $100 billion fund, it's been funded by the Tokyo-based company called SoftBank as well as the Saudi Pension Fund or the Sovereign Wealth Fund. Um, Why is that problematic? So several things are wrong here. One is, first, the investment management business is now all about how do I raise $100 billion? Because the economics of that are amazing. So now everybody in the investment management business is not talking about how do I invest, they're talking about how do I raise more money. That's a huge problem.
2: Second problem. So that I can have that dominant position.
1: I can have that dominant position and then I make two points on 100 billion, which means everything else doesn't matter, nothing matters. And so it's about asset gathering, um, not about investing. Uh, The second thing that goes wrong is the entire venture space gets screwed up because you're not trying to build a sustainable model, you're trying to attract $1 the $1 billion from SoftBank, and how do you do that? You make the most extravagant promises you can, and you burn as much cash as you can, and business becomes about the ability to burn cash, not about the ability to have good products. So what do we observe? And I have students like that. I mean, uh, you know, people who are basically just trying to raise money from SoftBank, because they know if they do, it's a billion dollar check, and then they're off to the races, and they can lose money for 20 years. That's a hugely undesirable way to live. And it has competitiveness problems. Yeah, Massive competitiveness problems. I mean, the founder of SoftBank has, has talked about wanting to be a cluster of number one companies. That's his way of talking about it. And then finally, uh, it really distorts things in the labor market for young people. And this I think is really important, which is young people now view it as kind of a lottery ticket kind of world.
2: Mm-hmm. Right?
1: The lottery ticket world is, damn, I just gotta get funded by SoftBank. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's not about uh, building a sustainable set of skills and an enterprise over time. It's about, I got to get funded by SoftBank. And the more extravagant the promise, the better. And by the way, it goes back to the pension funds, because what is SoftBank doing? SoftBank is raising money from funders who need to have like 20% returns to be satisfied. Well, how does SoftBank generate that? Well, SoftBank generates that by creating models that have even more extravagant promises. And so we have a daisy chain of very extravagant promises which won't be fulfilled. So I I like Uber. I think there's a huge wealth transfer going from the funders to me as a rider, because everything's so uneconomic and they're losing so much money. (laughs) Um, But as a representation of what's happening in the venture capital world and with mega venture capital, I think it's really problematic. So the incentives are all distorted away from... The incentives for investors are distorted towards asset gathering and not investing. The incentives for entrepreneurs are distorted towards bigger models that are more unrealistic and that take longer to pay off. And then the incentives for young people are distorted because it's just about buying a lottery ticket. And and the only way to fix that is to have a comeuppance to the investors. And I have to say, I was even thinking about my father. You know, no one wants to write an op-ed where you say... I hope you fail." Sure, And he would have thought that would have been kind of horrible. But the reality is that's the way we learn the lesson. And when bubbles burst, the faster they burst, the better, because of all the social dislocations that happen are less than they would be otherwise. And so that's the sense in which I think we need that bubble to burst.
2: We have microphones for anybody who would like a, a question. One of the biggest Phenomena since 2008 has been the growth of ETFs. Yeah. versus active management. Yeah, it's almost like one has funded the other yeah. and nowhere in that process Does anybody ask the question is this the right price to pay for the underlying asset the stocks in the fund exactly? A is that a problem and related to that has Warren Buffett and his more I'm gonna say skillful acolytes simply been lucky there are two great questions.
1: So first is we should just on this active and passive so people understand the dramatic nature of what you're talking about, which is um, active management is a mutual fund manager who's picking stocks. Uh, passive management is uh, I don't pick. I just buy everything because I'm passive, but I charge less in fees. And you're absolutely right. That's been a sea change in the last 10 years, right? So today, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street are going to be the largest shareholders in most companies in a way that we never even anticipated 10 years ago. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, there's good news there. The good news there is there was a lot of active management that wasn't adding a lot of value and they're kind of getting their clock cleaned because people figured out they weren't adding a lot of value, they were extracting value. That's the good news. Bad news is, you're absolutely right, they're indiscriminate and it's unclear how they're gonna apply governance. Now, Larry Fink, as you know, has made a lot of noises about how he's gonna do governance, as has Tim Buckley at Vanguard. But it's really hard to do governance when you have a mandate to buy everything. Um, I think what's going to evolve is a barbell-like world where there's a whole bunch of indexation happening and then there's a whole bunch of very activist kind of things happening who are doing the hard work of figuring out who the liars are and who the good people are. And that's okay. Um, The problem is if this index piece grows really large, it is indiscriminate. It is not that smart. It's kind of the classic dumb money, um, and it can create price moves that are really... And it could be overpaying. And it could, I mean, absolutely, and, and it's all about flows, right? So everything just becomes a, a function of flows. And that's just a fancy way of saying money entering the market, because more people are putting it in, you just, people have to put it to work. So you have to buy the S&P 500, so he buys the S&P 500. And then on the skillful acolytes, I mean, I think there it's really hard to know, you know, which is it's hard to know if they were skillful or not. Even with Buffett, and it's heresy to challenge Buffett, but it is worth acknowledging, as you I'm sure know, you know, his funding sources and reinsurance were a big chunk of his value creation, right? You built a company on an insurance company, Mm -hmm. and that gave him negative float, and that is a huge chunk of what he did. Um, And then he monetized his halo, which is, at the financial crisis, he went in at times when he could get deals that no one else could get you know, I, I think we should really be humble about this and really be humble about who is really good at what they do. I mean, Buffett has done this over a lifetime. I think that's a reasonable inference. But it's really hard to know otherwise. It's just really hard to know. And I, I think we should just all take a step back and say, I don't know if you're really that good at this. You may be. We'll find out over time. That's why, for example, compensation contracts are so screwed up in finance. Like, we pay money managers like, mm-hmm. every year with a, with a carry, which is a way of saying, I can tell, John, in this year, you added 20% and you get 4% of that. Come back, you step back and you think about that. That is crazy. Like, it's absurd. Like, how do I know if you added value? I have no idea. Is that luck or skill? I have no idea. But we've bought into this compensation contract, which is, is, is kind of crazy.
2: What about ESOPs? You think about what's fair and virtual and everything else, but there's not been really a lot of success in, in that model.
1: Yeah, this is really a hard question. And ESOPs, some people want to bring them back. So ESOPs are employee stock ownership programs, which are a way of saying employees own not necessarily all of a company, but a big chunk of a company. You know, my reading of that history is it's a problematic situation, right? And it sounds great. Employees get more of the wealth,
2: blah, blah, blah. But it realigns incentives, right? Because they have incentives that are different from the money managers.
1: Right, indeed. And they have control and they have potentially power. Unfortunately, what we observe in the history is not exactly that, right? So we observe ESOPs being managed not necessarily in the benefit of those workers. They can be managed by the managers as opposed to the workers, or they can be managed by professional folks who don't necessarily manage it terribly well. And maybe most importantly, for a worker, so I mean, you know, think about a General Motors worker. If they have all their wealth tied up in General Motors stock, that's not great. That means your human capital is tied up in General Motors because I'm working at General Motors. And then, oh yeah, your retirement package is tied up in General Motors because you've got a define benefit plan. Oh, and by the way, then your ESOP is tied up in General Motors. So go back to diversification. <laughs> That's like not a great way to apply diversification. So I'm not a huge fan of ESOPs. Um, I am a huge fan of the pension plans becoming much more active in creating diversified strategies for their pensioners. And I think we have to revisit, by the way, the other big revolution, which people don't pay enough attention to is the shift from DB to DC, which is defined benefit plans Mm -hmm. to defined contribution plans. Um, That's something which we should look at more than looking at things like trying to revive, I think, ESOPs. You think we're gonna be able to go
2: back to defined benefit plans?
1: I think we got rid of them in a, again, if you look back at the history, that's the new book. It's like crazy. It was a totally accidental thing. Totally accidental thing in the early 1980s that was accelerated by the asset management industry. It was not a conscious choice. To stop defined benefit plans. Oh, wow. uh, and, I mean, and it's a revolution in the way we think about retirement sure. risk, but then also how all these assets get managed, which is the first order problem.
2: Um, yeah. You you looked at both Apple and Google, and basically said Apple's doing it better. Is that, is that my correct view of well, your?
1: I tried, what I tried to do in this example, um, and this was an Atlantic piece that came out last year or the year before. There are two models of capitalism that are evolving. One's represented by Apple and one's represented by Google. What do I mean by that? So it's all about how all the profits in the economy are gonna get recycled. So what happened in Apple five years ago or six years ago? Huge shareholder revolt. And why? There's no big shareholder of Apple. Jobs never had a big stake, nobody had a big stake. So David Einhorn and Carl Icahn mounted a revolt and they got them to disgorge all their cash. Apple has disgorged $200 billion, $250 billion over the last five years. That means they gave the cash back in buybacks and dividends. When that revolt happened, what did Google do? And the answer is Google became Alphabet, Mm -hmm. which is a way of saying they looked at what happened to Apple, and they said, we don't want that to happen to us. We're going to give 10x voting rights to Larry Page, Sergey Brin, and Eric Schmidt. Okay, so now what's going to happen in the last five years? In one case, Both are incredibly profitable companies, massive cash flows. In one case, Apple, who's recycling all those profits? Answer, David Einhorn, Carl Icahn, you, and me. In the Google case, massive profits, massive cash flows. Who's recycling all those profits? Answer, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Eric Schmidt. These are two different models. One is called managerial capitalism, and one is an investor-based capitalism model. It depends on what problem you think is worse, right? The problem in Google is you know what these guys are going to do they're going to like spend it on stupid stuff and like google glass cubed <laughs> you know and what's the problem in apple all these investors are so short sighted they apple won't invest in the next generation products uh-huh. and that's the tension today is those two forms of capitalism that are kind of happening side by side one is an investor dominated one and one is a management dominated
2: we are now out of time by 1 minute so thanks to all of you for being here thank you thank no you for your time.
0: Mihir Desai teaches finance at Harvard Business School. He's also a law professor at Harvard. His most recent books are The Wisdom of Finance, Discovering Humanity in the World of Risk and Return, and How Finance Works. John Dickerson is a correspondent for 60 Minutes on CBS. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year round on Twitter and Facebook. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keelene Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.